We will be in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 13 and 14 at the final stanza to this glorious hymn of adoration that sings about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are reaching the the final conclusion, the climax, if you will, of this wondrous hymn. And recall that the Apostle Paul starts this way very intentionally as, as he opens the letter, identifying himself, addressing his readers. He then begins with this adoration, which is... Uh, the, the really the greatest of all New Testament passages dealing with the triune God. And he sings this hymn in three stanzas, and the stanzas are arranged both theologically around the Father, Son, and Spirit, as well as chronologically about what the Father has done before the world began, what uh, the Son has done in redemption and the uh, present blessings that we're experiencing because of that, but then also, ultimately, what will happen in the inheritance that we will receive in the Spirit and this final climactic day of redemption uh, that will discuss here today. And so this final stanza is looking forward to what is coming yet ahead of us. And the whole point of this is Paul is trying to lift our eyes heavenward so that we begin to gaze at the glory of God and the person of Christ and what he has achieved for us in the gospel. But our focus this morning is going to be on verse 13 and 14 that is focusing on this, in this hymn to the triune God, it's focusing on the Holy Spirit. And the purpose is to bring praise to the Spirit for his role in redemption. And there's two big ideas that we see in this section that we're to spend the next you know, hour or so unpacking. We're going to first see how the Apostle Paul describes the Spirit of God as our seal, our seal. And then secondly, as our earnest. The Spirit of God functions on behalf of the believer as our seal and our earnest. And once we understand what those are and what they entail, it helps stir within us an excitement and an anticipation of what is coming, an appreciation for what we have now in Christ and the present role of the Spirit in our life, but then what that role of the Spirit in our life means and how it is a foretaste of coming glory. And so it is meant to produce within us that eager anticipation of the coming glory. So if you have your Bible, Let's go ahead and read those two verses together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and verse 14 says this, In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of his glory." Now, again, as we contemplate these two verses, this final stanza in this hymn to the triune God, I want you to learn to to appreciate the person and purpose of the Spirit of God in our lives and in this process of redemption. Now, again, just by way of introduction, recall that this stanza of the hymn deals with the future work of salvation and this glorious inheritance that will be enjoyed by the saints. That's what is ultimately in view when we see, when we read in verse 14, that he is the earnest of our inheritance, our coming inheritance, that we will receive at this, uh, what he calls, until the redemption of the purchased possession, at this, this day of redemption, this climactic moment in human history where we see the coming of Christ, when we see the saints and all that has been promised to us in Christ come to fruition. And that is, of course, what is in view in these passages this, or these verses. 
Now, again, as we look first at this big idea of how the Spirit serves as our seal, notice how it fits into the overall thought flow of what Paul has been describing in this section. Recall that the first stanza was all about the plan of the Father. Second stanza was about the work of the Son. But now Paul goes on to tell us about the role of the Spirit in our redemption. And if you recall, we ended with this idea that though we will be, to the praise of God's glory, those who first trusted in Christ. That's verse 12. That's where we left off. But now he's, he's, he's taking that a step further. In verse 13, he says, in whom you also trusted. In other words, we trusted in Christ after we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then after having believed, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let me walk you through that briefly. As we contemplate the idea that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, he begins by describing us, the objects that have been sealed. We who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he marches us through this short little order of salvation, if you will. That we heard the gospel, that we believed in this word of truth, or what he calls the gospel of our salvation. And then we trusted in this Christ and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, there's a logical order, there's a flow of thought when we approach this, this text as it's highlighting for us the role of the Spirit and this sealing of the Spirit that comes after our belief. Notice in particular in verse 13 how he describes how we trusted in Christ after we heard the word of truth. That phrase is important not only for the original readers in antiquity, but for us in modernity. But try to place yourself back in that time and place, in that original setting, where if you're living on that west coast of Asia Minor, you're living in a very religiously pluralistic environment. There are multiple gods and goddesses being worshipped. There's temples and shrines and, and altars all over the place to various gods and goddesses and divine beings, etc. And yet, into that pluralistic environment, this idea that, hey, you worship your God, I'll worship mine, every, you know, all roads lead to Rome, that idea, Paul speaks and he says, no, there is a word of truth. In fact, he calls it the word of truth. There is a universal truth that universally applies. And this idea, this statement would have undoubtedly been perceived back then as it is today, perceived as exclusive and narrow that those bigoted Christians, right, that we say we have the truth. Well, that's what God says, is that there is one truth. Jesus put it this way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. But for those who hear this and are offended, there is on the flip side those who hear this, who trust it, who turn to Christ from these other religions. And Paul's assurance here is that they were following the truth and this would have encouraged these believers that they chose the right path, that they have not been deceived, but rather this is the truth. And they can reject all false religion, all other forms of various worship to various gods and goddesses because now they have the truth. In fact, if we were to go, and we won't for sake of time, but if we were to comb through the New Testament, particularly the Pauline writings, we would discover that he frequently spoke of the gospel as the truth. He'll do this in the book of Galatians. We see it in 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and of course our text here as well. 
And the idea is that we have been given the truth that is true in all time, in all places, to all people. But notice in verse 13, he also equates this word of truth with the next phrase, the gospel of your salvation. These two phrases are synonymous in verse 13. The gospel or the good news, right? If you've heard this, I've I've used that uh, phrase many times. The term gospel is an old English word. It literally means good news. The good news, uh, euangelion is the Greek term. It means a message, a, a piece of news that tells of victory and triumph. It's a good piece of news about Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says is the word of truth. And this concept is, of course, what we, he just spent the last several verses describing. We spent a couple of weeks unpacking that middle stanza where it's describing the redemption that we have through the blood of Christ, verse 7, the forgiveness of sins that we have received according to the riches of his grace. And we unpacked those ideas of the gospel, redemption, forgiveness, the payment of Christ made on the cross, that we as slaves to sin have been set free through the cross work of Christ. But our text, as he moves to this third stanza, verse 13 to 14, is talking about what happens subsequent to that, what happens after that. And he says that they're hearing, this, the audience, the original readers, as he's addressing them, that as they heard the gospel, it resulted in them trusting in him, in Christ. And this is important for us to realize because it's not, you know, Paul is, is taking it a step further here as he does in many other places. Romans 3 is a big one. But many places in in Paul's writings, he highlights this, that it's not enough to merely believe in God, right? James chapter two puts it this way. He says, you believe in God? Good for you, right? The demons also believe. They even tremble. But the reality is Christians believe more than just there is a God. Christians, by definition, believe in Jesus as the Christ. And this idea that Jesus Christ, it is his person and work that saves That is what distinguishes Christian thought and theology from all these other pagan religions that were surrounding these original readers that are very true for us today as we look across our society that is also very pluralistic. Every road leads to Rome, all roads lead to heaven, we're told, but the Bible says something very different. But as this audience hears, verse 13, it says, "'In whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, "'the gospel of your salvation,' in whom also after you believed, he says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here is where we get to the first of those two big ideas when we speak of the role of the Holy Spirit in this process of redemption. The first thing Paul points us to is the fact that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. I want to unpack this concept for the next few moments so that you can learn to appreciate it and you can learn to to worship God in light of it. Seals or seal impressions were often made with signet rings. You're perhaps familiar with this. If you study history or been to a museum uh, that has these sort of examples of this, I'll show you a picture in just a minute. But seal impressions were very common. They were often made with signet rings, which were very common in ancient Roman society. And these seals were used in a variety of contexts. They were used religiously, economically, and politically for all sorts of different reasons. Let me give you some examples of that. All of a person's important possessions, often including even slaves, livestock as well, would be marked with the owner's seal. Even Roman soldiers in antiquity would be marked at times to identify which legion they belonged to. 
So these seals, these marks, were made to identify various aspects. The picture I'm about to show you is actually from a bronze statue of Emperor Tiberius. He's the emperor during the uh, New Testament era. Well, one of the emperors. There's several in the New Testament era, but he's the guy who's on the throne when Jesus is crucified. But here is the bronze statue of Tiberius. And I don't know if you can make it out, but on his left uh, ring finger there is a signet ring. And this was put right in onto the, uh, the bronze statue representing Tiberius because this was normal, it was expected. Well, Tiberius, as many others, carried a signet ring and he would make seal impressions for a variety of reasons or purposes. In summary, I like to say this, I like to break down this big concept into three smaller ideas, basic ideas. That the purpose of a seal impression functioned in three primary ways. It communicates identity, authenticity, and security. I want to consider those three ideas in turn so that you can appreciate how the Spirit of God functions in our life. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that communicates our identity. We are God's children. Our authenticity, that we are true children of God. And our security, that we are protected and preserved until the day of redemption. That idea, those, those ideas are really important for us to realize so that we can have confidence in who we are in Christ. So again, let's look at those three ideas, identity, authenticity, security. First, let's look at the idea that a seal identifies. A seal identifies. Roman seals often included an image of one's favorite deity or hero that they identified with, examples being Zeus or Hercules or some other deity. In like manner, Christians are identified with Jesus Christ. And our identity with Jesus Christ is being sealed by the Spirit of God. Thus, a seal identified the owner of something. And when God marks us with his seal, he places his mark upon us and he claims us as his own. No one then can ultimately steal or harm us because we are God's. He has placed his mark upon us. Elsewhere, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul alludes to this, and he's actually making a pretty potent argument because he's combating those who are thinking that he is not a true apostle. And he says, if you want to level that charge against me, he says, behold in my body the marks of Christ. And what he's probably alluding to is the fact that he has been beaten and whipped and scarred, and he bears in his body the symbols of his faithfulness to Christ. He says, I am Christ's. And he says, if you think otherwise, let me show you the evidence of my faithfulness to Christ. That's what he's saying there in Galatians chapter six. But the point is, again, it's similar to here. He's, he's, uh, the concept being, I am identified with Christ. I have an open seal, something that is obvious to all that identifies me as being a follower of Christ. We'll explore that in just more in just a moment, how the Spirit of God does this in our lives. But nonetheless, this is the concept, this is one of those concepts when he talks about the Spirit of God being our seal, is he identifies us as being gods. God owns us. But a seal is not only important in how it identifies, but also in how it authenticates. Again, seals were also used to authenticate royal documents as genuinely from the emperor or a governmental delegate. 
we see that this is, again, we see this all throughout antiquity, all throughout history. We see it even to modernity. But the idea of a signature or something that you use to sign or seal to authenticate that it is you writing the document, whatever, we still understand this to this day. And Paul says that the Spirit of God in our life functions in that way, that he authenticates us as genuinely God's children. And I think this is interesting, but the, we, we must ask the question, in what way does the Holy Spirit authenticate us as true believers? Well, we won't go for sake of time to all these passages, but Romans 8, Galatians 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, all highlight this reality that the Holy Spirit serves to authenticate believers as genuine believers by producing in us the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, how, what is the external, visible, obvious to everybody sign that, or seal that we are true children of God? It's the Holy Spirit in our lives. How do we know the Holy Spirit's in our lives? Because the Holy Spirit makes us holy. That's the point. He describes, for instance, and well, in fact, I think it's worth, let me just read. You're only a couple pages from it, right? Uh, just go backwards, take a, take a quick left to Galatians chapter 5. And let me read just a few verses from verse 19 and following. Galatians 5, 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest. It's obvious. Which are these? He lists them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, and that is the evidence that the Spirit is in your life and he is producing in you, the evidence that he's there is that he is producing these things, these fruits. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Paul will give similar lists elsewhere in his writings, but it th I think it makes the point as we read Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit of God is in us to produce holiness in us. Now we know, Paul himself makes this clear several places in the scripture, this change doesn't take place overnight, right? It is a progressive sanctification. He is working in us this holiness. We may cooperate in that task, or we at times resist what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. And so we're not as holy as we ought be. But God is the gracious heavenly father. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, God as our heavenly father chastens his children. Why? Read Hebrews 12. He does it to produce holiness within us. He says, without which no man will see the Lord. If there is not evidence of holiness in your life, however halting that might be, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, right? But nonetheless, God is at work in true believers. Why? Because the Spirit of God is there. And that will evidence itself in your life. And if there is no evidence in your life, the Holy Spirit probably isn't there. And that's the New Testament message. Peter will elsewhere say, make your calling and election sure. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that mean work for your own salvation? No, that's something different entirely. 
right? The idea we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but the redemption price is paid in the blood of Christ. I don't work for that, but rather Paul says, work it out. And the word work it out is actually a Greek word that's a mathematical term. It means finish the equation. The idea is bring it to its logical conclusion. If God has saved you and if the spirit of God is in you, what should that logically lead to? Change of life. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Start evidencing your faith in Christ. And we do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God works not only to identify believers, but authenticate believers uh, as not only owned by God, but truly God's children. But then thirdly, the Spirit of God as our seal, a seal also communicates this idea of protection. A seal protects. This is a simple concept, also true in our day. We can illustrate it in various ways. But seals identified private property, which was then protected under Roman law. I give you Matthew 27, 66 as an example. This is actually the tomb of Christ. When he is crucified and entombed, they seal his tomb with a Roman seal. And it was illegal to break that seal. And of course, Jesus broke it when he came out, right? (laughs) But nonetheless, the idea of a seal is that they, they were trying to say Roman law protects this. Don't come and break this seal or the wrath of the Romans will befall you. Well, that similar idea is equivalent in our culture with the idea of United States mail, right? The idea is you can't break open, break the seal on someone else's mail. That's illegal. And so it's protected by U.S. law. In other words, we have a modern equivalent of this idea. And there's many other examples that we could give. But the point is, The Holy Spirit not only identifies us as God's, but also guarantees that God will protect us until the day of redemption. We'll come back to that phrase, but in verse 14, it gives us that phrase, the day of redemption. But the Holy Spirit serves as our protection, as our seal. Another couple of interesting pieces of background that may help illustrate this point. Anyone ever read Herodotus, the father of history, he's sometimes called? Herodotus actually tells us a story of slaves who escaped from their cruel master. They retreated to a temple, to Hercules. They received the seal of the god Hercules and thus were able to escape their cruel master because when they received the seal of Hercules, they were now considered the property of Hercules. You can read about that account in Herodotus, uh, book two, paragraph 113, for those of you who want to look me up. But nonetheless... Notice how interesting of an illustration that is, the parallel, is that we too, in a sense, have been dominated by a cruel master, a cruel overlord. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8, but those who sin are slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin, and it's a cruel overlord, but we can retreat to the safety of the benevolent master who seals us with his seal, who owns us now, frees us from the wicked master and grants to us true life. In fact, eternal life. That concept is maybe what Paul is is drawing upon, this idea of these many components associated with the idea of a seal. One other helpful illustration that might serve as possible background here is many you know, scholars point this out that in Paul's hometown of Tarsus, merchants would place their specific seal upon their goods. 
before shipping them downriver to market. When these goods were received downriver, they would then be sorted into the various piles representing the various owners, and then they would be sent to market and sold. And the idea is, again, just another way of illustrating the same point, is that, in a sense, we have been purchased by the crosswork of Christ. We've been sealed as being owned by God, but we haven't been claimed yet. In, in other words, we're still waiting the second coming. We're not yet in the immediate heavenly presence of God. We've talked about it. We've seen it several times in this stanza that we are going to be to the praise of his glory, that we will one day join the heavenly throng as we gather about the throne, singing praises to the heavenly king, but we're not there yet. But we are destined to be there. And so we have been sealed, identified as purchased by God. We've been placed on layaway. Can I put it that way? (laughs) Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? And we will be claimed. And that's the idea. And what is guaranteeing that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he calls, in verse, the end of verse 13, he calls the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit of promise. Now, you can take that phrase one of two ways, which I think both are, are very helpful. What does it mean when Paul says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? What is the Holy Spirit of promise referring to? Well, first, it could refer to the fact that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit was something promised repeatedly throughout the scriptures. In other words, in the Old Testament, we have examples such as Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Joel 2, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, just as a sample list of promises that the Old Testament made that one day we would receive God's very own spirit to dwell within us, to internalize God's law within us, to change us, as Bob prayed earlier, from the inside out. That presence and power of the Holy Spirit was something promised. Jesus refers to it in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, verse 44 of that chapter. He describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of promise, the spirit that the Father has promised. But Jesus says, I'm gonna send him. He makes the same promise in Acts chapter one as he's about to ascend into glory from atop the Mount of Olives. He looks at his closest followers, this ring of the faithful few, and he says to them, go and tarry in Jerusalem because not many days from hence, the spirit of God is coming down. I'm gonna send him and he's gonna fill you with power. That of course happens. Read about it in Acts chapter two. Paul talks about it many places, but Galatians three is a good example where he talks about the spirit of God coming. It was promised of old, but it's been fulfilled in the new covenant. So this phrase or title, the Holy Spirit of promise, might refer to that, that it's, it's a promise fulfilled, a promise granted to us in the Old Testament throughout the life of Christ, but now being fulfilled. We're experiencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit right now. However, there's another angle to this promise, namely that the Spirit of God not only serves as a fulfillment of past promises, but he also serves as a promise of more to come in the future. His presence not only fulfills past promises, but it is also a present promise of more to come. That God has more in store for his followers 
the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our second big concept. Not only that the Spirit of God serves as our seal, but also as our earnest. Verse 14, he says, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, into verse 13, then he says verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. As the earnest of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit serves as a sort of down payment, a pledge, a security, or a guarantee. That's what the word earnest refers to. A pledge, a down payment, a security, or a guarantee. In fact, this word is used several places in the Old Testament. It crashed on me again, but don't worry. I got it memorized. So, where was I? Let me give you two illustrations of this. One ancient, one modern. In the Old Testament, this particular Greek word that is used to refer to the, uh, the pledge or the guarantee, it, it surfaces in one of those sordid stories of the Old Testament. All right, I'm not going to digress and get X-rated here, but you remember Genesis chapter 37, 38, where there's this really, or 38 rather, a really strange occurrence where Judah actually uh, goes in to pay a price for a prostitute. Remember this? And it ends up being his daughter-in-law conniving. Read the story sometime. It's a little sordid, like I said. There's a reason behind it. But nonetheless, when he offers payment, she asks for a pledge. What's the pledge? Well, he takes off his, his wrist you know, uh, bracelets that identify, it probably is his seal, by the way. Seals not only have um, you know, rings, but sometimes bracelets. In fact, when I was uh, in Chicago years back at the uh, Oriental Institute Museum, it's, uh, it has all sorts of different artifacts from antiquity, particularly Mesopotamia and Egypt. And anyways, they had bracelets that were seals where you could take off the bracelet, press it in, in some like wet clay or, or uh, uh, wax or something like that, and then you would roll it and it would produce a seal. And they had, they had dozens of these seals that, that were encased in the museum. And so it's probably his seal. And she says, I want that bracelet. And then it was his staff, I believe. So he gives them to her. And then, of course, as the story develops, later she is found to be with child. And Judah condemns her to death. And then she produces the seals and says, this is whom I am impregnated by. And Judah was silenced. <laughs> right? Isn't that a great story? All right, everyone read that one to your children this evening, Genesis chapter 38, verses 17 to 20. But the point is, that same Greek word is used in that passage to refer to that. All right, the idea of a seal uh, being used as an earnest, a guarantee of future payment. Now, uh, the modern example is that modern Greek, now again, uh, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, not to get off into it, but Koine Greek is... is it's different than modern Greek, a lot of similarities, but modern Greek is very different. Uh, but there, the, what's interesting is modern Greek uses this same Greek word that appears in Koine Greek to refer to an earnest or a pledge or a down payment. It uses it to refer to an engagement ring in modernity. What's an engagement ring? It's a promise that I'm going to marry you, right? Will you marry me? Here's the ring. The ring promises that I intend to carry through my, my promise of marriage. But it's not the marriage yet. It's not the marriage vow. But it's a promise of the, the wedding to come, the marriage to come. And so the word is very helpful in that regard. Now, again, this concept is, is 
important for us to realize on a variety of different levels. Go ahead and keep clicking. My mind is not even going to come back up. I don't know why. But what's interesting is that we see this uh, earnest is, is, according to verse 14, it's a promise of something further that's coming, right? Do you see this idea? The Spirit is our earnest in that he's a down payment for the complete glorification we will one day enjoy in heaven. Look at verse 14. He says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, the Holy Spirit is functioning as our promise of more to come. God has predestined us. Recall this. This goes all the way back to the first stanza of the chapter. But God has predestined us to a marvelous future. This idea of the glory that is coming. We will enjoy this future in his presence. And yet this glorious future is promised to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. God says there's more to come. But here's the earnest. Here's the, I like the word, foretaste of what is coming later. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, what is so interesting about this, when we consider how the Holy Spirit functions as our foretaste, how does that work out? Well, I'll give you two suggestions there on the screen. And I mean, I think we could fill this out with even more suggestions. uh, And I encourage you to, to think through this on your own. But I do want you to consider at least these two realities. In what way is the Holy Spirit a foretaste of future glory? Well, first, in the idea that it provides intimacy in our relationship with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 describes how we have the Spirit of God and we, are, we know that we are God's children because the Spirit of God is within us. And he produces within us this sort of intimate relationship with the Father so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, the fact that we have the Spirit of God in our life is what affords us a greater degree of intimacy in our relationship with God. And yet this is merely a foretaste of what's coming. It's going to get way better in heaven. But not only is the Holy Spirit a foretaste in the sense of having uh, a more intimate relationship with God, but also he is the power that God gives to us by which we can live a holy life. We read it just moments ago, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 25, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., We can live that way because we have the Spirit of God in our life. We can now begin on a daily, progressive sort of sense. We can learn to to overcome sin in our lives. And we can begin to taste heaven's glories that we will one day be delivered completely from sin and suffering. But right now, we can be delivered progressively, day by day, through the presence and the power of the Spirit in our life. But the Spirit... Again, it tells us in this text, Paul tells us that the Spirit serves this function, according to verse 14, until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, he's our earnest. He's just the down payment. He's the promise that more is coming. But when that comes, it is what Paul calls the redemption of the purchased possession. That there is coming a time when we will be redeemed in the ultimate sense. Again, here in verse 14, that phrase, until the redemption of the purchased possession. In this context, the term redemption is looking forward to the final stage of the believer's redemption. That is his ultimate glorification. Like I said before, we're kind of, we're, we're marked, we're, we've been purchased, we've been marked, we've been put on layaway, but God hasn't come to claim us yet. That's coming. 
There is more coming. There's a perfect world coming, but it hasn't happened yet. We're promised it. It's been purchased for us. We have been, you know, the signature and the seal has been given, but the ultimate day of redemption is yet to transpire. And this purchase possession, this lingo, phraseology is interesting because it likens us to God's property that he has claimed but not yet retrieved. Go with me, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 14. Let's spend just a few moments contemplating this before we start crowding the end of the hour and I gotta shut up. But in John 14, don't forget the context of this passage. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then often chapter 17 is lumped in with it, is, is called the upper room discourse. Where the Lord Jesus, the night in which he is to be betrayed, is preparing his disciples for his soon departure and the life that they will have to live in his absence. He begins with this declaration. He begins this discourse with the declaration that he has to go. That soon he is about to depart. In fact, uh, if you've got your Bible, back up to verse or chapter 13 just briefly. Let's start in verse 31 just so you can get a flavor for this. He says, therefore, when he was gone out, this is referring to Judas, who just left the room. I, uh, I don't have the time to recreate all of this, but I love this scene because Jesus is the, if you were with us in the Sunday school hour and we were in our introduction to the book of Proverbs and we're talking about wisdom and savvy and prudence and all these you know, words, do you remember when Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says that we are to be wise or shrewd as serpents and yet harmless as doves. That idea of shrewdness or cunning is in a positive sense, it's a very powerful idea. We see it multiple times in the life of Christ. And here's a good example of it, but you know, where he is, he's outsmarting his betrayer. Jesus knows Judas is about to betray him. And so he exposes Judas as the betrayer. And he does that to get Judas to get out of the room. Because now Judas is, you know, he's outed. He knows that Jesus knows that he's about to betray him. So he says, hey, it's time to fish or cut bait. So he leaves to go and spring the trap. Jesus wants Judas gone. Why? So that he can have these moments of intimate conversation with his faithful 11. He wants them to be prepared for his soon departure. So he says, all right, guys. He exposes Judas. Judas takes off. And then, of course, I mean, we could get lost in this, but one more thought on that is he, he then, he starts the upper room discourse right here. But did you remember reading in the, in the book of John? Halfway through the discourse, he gets up and he leads them out to the Mount of Olives. Why is that? Because Judas, who's just gonna go get all the soldiers, where's Judas gonna come back to to get Jesus arrested? He's gonna come back to the upper room. That's where he left Jesus. But Jesus isn't there. So then it tells us in another gospel that uh, Judas understands, oh, okay, most, next most likely place is the Mount of Olives, so he goes there to find Jesus. And of course, that's where Jesus is. But Jesus does this. He purposefully leaves the upper room to go to the Mount of Olives. Why? So that he could have a few extra moments, not only with his 11 faithful disciples, because they need what he's about to tell them, but also when he's done talking to them, who else does he have to talk to? He has to talk to the Father. Jesus has to prepare himself. And so he wants moments alone in prayer. And so Jesus, he, it's remarkable. We could go off on that, but the point is, he is so good at outmaneuvering Judas. 
Where was I? Verse 31. He says, so when he was gone out, Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified. So he turns to his 11 and he begins to give them this info. And he says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children. I love how he calls them this a couple different times. So the gospel narratives, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Simon Peter, right, he's always the spokesman to the group, speaks up, verse 36, and says unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Where are you going? And Jesus answered, well, whither I go, you can't now follow me, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter says unto him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Of course, Jesus points to the reality that that's not going to happen. Right? Jesus answered and said, well, will you lay down your life for my sake? I mean, uh, not to recreate that whole scene, but it's, it's, it's profound. I can just imagine Jesus turning on Peter and looking him in the eye and says, do you really mean that? Right? And Peter just kind of getting quiet. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I send to you, the cock shall not crow till you have denied me thrice. But he keeps going. Here's our passage. Chapter 14, verses one to three. He says, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, Peter is evidencing the fact that their hearts are troubled. He just said, guys, I'm leaving. They've just spent the last three years of their life with Jesus. And so they are like, whoa, wait a minute. Where are you going? And why can't we follow you? Like they're having a panic moment. So Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here's the reality. Jesus, knowing that they're going to be troubled by this news, which again, beautiful design. Jesus gets Judas out of the room so we can have these moments with the 11. Why? Because he's preparing them. Why? Because they're just about to witness his arrest and then his crucifixion. And if Jesus isn't careful to prepare them, their entire faith is going to be shattered. In fact, it almost is. Peter, after denying Christ three times, is, he's, he's almost you know, done, ready to walk away were it not for Jesus coming to restore him personally. I think Peter would have gone off the deep end. It says he went off, wept bitterly, realizing that he betrayed the Lord Jesus. And now Jesus, you know, he, he's, he no longer can make it right. Jesus is gone. In fact, later in this same passage, Jesus makes an interesting promise. He says, guys, you, you're going to see me no more. And then you're going to sorrow but he says, your sorrow will be turned into you know, joy. And he's referring to his resurrection. He says, you're gonna witness me be crucified, but then you're gonna witness the resurrection. He says, and then I'm gonna leave. But this is Acts chapter one. Jesus is about to ascend into glory. They're like, whoa, don't go. Like, what, what are we gonna do without you? And Jesus says, and here's where it ties back into our passage. Jesus says, well, I'll be back. I'm going to come back and get you. That's the redemption of the purchased possession. You've been purchased. You've been sealed. You're set aside on layaway. I'm coming back for you. But in the meantime, 
He says, I'm going to give you the Spirit. I will not leave you. In fact, later on in this passage in John 14, verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Isn't that great? Jesus says, because he just called them little children. Right? Have you ever done that? Have you ever had to leave on a longer trip when you had little kids? And your kids start panicking? Whoa, wait a minute. When they get teenagers, they kind of push you out the door. And they're like, yeah, right? <laughs> but when they're little and they still love you, <laughs> you know, then it's, it's one of those things. They're, they're, they don't want you to go. They're afraid of your departure. Why? Because they're not sure you're coming back. So what do we do for those little children? What does Jesus do for his? He makes them promises. He gives them a special gift, the Holy Spirit, that represents those promises. That is the earnest, the guarantee that there's more coming. And he says, I'll be back. But in the meantime, I will not leave you as orphans. You will not be parentless. But rather, he says, you'll have the Spirit of God. So, as they're gathered on Mount Olivet, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. That's the promise he gives them. He says, go, tarry, because not many days from hence, the Spirit of God is coming. And when that Spirit of God comes, he will fill you. He will empower you. He will give you that more intimate relationship with the Father. He will give you a power that up till now, history has never experienced, a power to live life for the glory of God. In other words, Jesus promises to give us everything necessary for life and godliness. So think about it. Think big picture. Summarize. By serving as our seal and our earnest, the Spirit guarantees our hope until redemption is done. He's giving us that foretaste, but he's a promise of more to come. And this concept is really important for us to stew on and even sing about one more time. I want to direct your attention one more time to the, the song that we have sung several times through our, uh, you know, I mean, throughout the last several months, but particularly in our study of Ephesians chapter 1. And that is the song, Come Praise and Glorify. Now, before we sing it, let me walk you one more time through the lyrics so that you can learn to appreciate in light of our study of Ephesians chapter 1, you can learn to appreciate what we're singing about. Notice these with me. First, it says, Come praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessings on us poured. For pure and blameless in his sight he destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through his Son eternally. The chorus, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. Second verse, come praise and glorify our God who gives his grace in Christ. In him our sins are washed away. This is the second stanza, right? The redemption through his blood. In him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In him God has made known to us the mystery of his will. We talked about that last time we were together, the climax of history. God has revealed to us the second coming of Christ. In him, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that Christ should be the head of all, his purpose to fulfill. Third verse. 
Come praise and glorify our God, for we've believed the word. This is our stanza that we just finished studying. Come praise and glorify our God, for we've believed the word. And through our faith we have a seal, the spirit of the Lord. The spirit guarantees our hope until redemption's done, until we join in endless praise to God the three in one. Isn't that good? That's some powerful lyrics, all right? So if I could have you all stand up with me. Daniel, please come forward, my man. Music team, take your spot. You need to do piano? Why don't you play piano? Yeah, yeah, I'll hack through this, okay? So just buckle up, everybody. Okay, give us our intro, my man.